So thank you guys so much for being with us today. I am continuing a series called Wisdom and Power. It's been a lot of fun preaching this message, uh, or this series actually. Part of it is because it's really my life's calling, is to actually see the wisdom and the power of God come back to the church in the way that Jesus meant it for, the be, for it to be. As a matter of fact, uh, when Paul wrote, writes to the Corinthians, he says to them, he says, you're not lacking in any gift in their church. And yet, if you read 1 Corinthians, part of the, the big part of the letter is correcting them and how they're walking in power. They're actually doing it wrong. And Paul's whole treatise in that was, uh, the answer isn't to get rid of the gifts in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The answer is to do it well, to do it the way God designed it. Uh, and he talks about 1 Corinthians 13 is this whole love chapter, but it's sandwiched between desire the spiritual gifts in 1 you know, uh, Corinthians 12 and verse 14, um, desire the spiritual gifts, earnestly desire, especially to prophesy. So it's interesting that uh, Paul was never about uh, getting rid of the gifts. He was never about getting rid of power. He was about challenging us to walk in wisdom when we're walking in the power. It's really interesting, even in that there's a big movement nowadays to walk in authenticity, uh, especially, um, you see a lot on the websites, uh, a lot on websites nowadays about how to walk in authenticity, how to, how to be your authentic self. And so part of the challenge and why we're going to go into that uh, about w- uh, walking in the wisdom and the power of God is uh, if we grew up in the wisdom camp, our authentic self is wisdom, <laughs> right? If we grew up in the power camp, our authentic self is power. And so the danger is if we're not careful, we're, we're, we're like, you know, I got to do what I know and I got to, and if, and if we're not careful, we won't grow. We won't grow into what God desires for us to be and to walk in his power. And we're called on a mission and it turns out that in this mission, you need some power, you need some wisdom, you need everything that comes from Jesus because it turns out he's the one who's actually sending us on this mission in the first place. I looked up, uh, what does it mean to be authentic on, online? So good luck with that one if you chase that one down. Um, <laughs> the first website I came to, it says Authentic- authenticity is defined about 13 years ago by psychologists Brian Goldman and Michael Kernis, praise their holy names. That part wasn't in there, I just, it was implied. <laughs> and it says authenticity is the unimpeded operation of one's true or core self in one's daily enterprise. Right? So, uh, I love that it was only invented 13 years ago by these psychologists. I thought that was interesting. Um, here's another thing it says. Uh, it says that authenticity starts when you set the intention to be genuine. In other words, quit lying to yourself. You know, it's about time. You're 40. So maybe it's time to start. Again, not on the website. It's also implied. Um, and then it goes on. It says, uh, here are five ways to create an authentic life. First one is redefine your values. Um, my thought was maybe start with define your values, and then if you need to redefine your values, that's fine. But I have some challenges with that first website, obviously. And the second one was foster an open mind. I love that, but I have heard that you don't want to be so open-minded that your brain falls out. So there's temper this a little bit. Secondly, or thirdly, it says fill in the blank with this. It says, if you really knew me, you'd know this. So, and then fill in the blank. If you, if you, if you want to know my authentic self, this is, this is that, right? So I, don't, I have more to say about that later. <laughs> Fourthly, it says, notice when you're being inauthentic. In other words, recognize, okay, you might be living a lie and maybe do something about that. I, I totally 100% agree with that one. And then lastly, it says, trust your intuition. And that's assuming that your inti- intuition can be trusted, <laughs> right? So there's making a, the truth is this website and most of the websites, especially most self-help nowadays outside of God, is really about being self-sufficient, right? 
and, and God has a lot to say about self, <laughs> um, especially selfishness, right? Selflessness is kind of the model we see Jesus bringing us, um, but there's a lot that talks about your authentic self. Another way to say this, though, is are you living your core values? But there's a whole lot wrapped up in core values, right? So what are your core values? So some de- define it as personal ethics or ideals that guide you when making decisions, building relationships, and solving problems. That makes a lot of sense. So basically, your core values are what's most important to you, your most deeply held, highly cherished ideals, right? So here's the thing about core values. Everyone has core values, whether they know they have core values or not. Uh, You can say, well, I don't have any core values. That's probably one of your core values. <laughs> right? So you, you don't get out of this because you don't address it, right? You're like, I'll, I'll plead ignorance. Well, we'll ju- you'll just be ignorant, but it still applies to you. It's kind of my point. So where do core values come from? So for most people, core values are developed through life experiences, family patterns. You know, again, how you grew up, what kind of family you were like uh, or your family was like. Social conditioning, that's a frightening one. Uh, and then consumption of content, events, and opinions. Consumption. In other words, what other people are saying, you're just taking it in. And so the, the challenge with that, again, is you're, if you're not careful, you just take in because it's the most popular opinion. That's the one you land on. And if you're not careful, that becomes your core value. So you have to be careful. Um, our beliefs affirm our core values. They're off, often unquestioned convictions. And see, this is a dangerous thing. When you have unquestioned convictions, they better be built on something strong, right? <laughs> because if you have an unquestioned conviction, you better be right because the implications of you being wrong in this are, are pretty high. But here's the better question, not, not where do they come, but, come from, but where should your core values come from is maybe a better question. Um, are we the source of those core values? According to all the self-help stuff you'll read out there, um, we are. That's why it says trust your in- intuition. You know, you'll kind of know, live your best life. There's just so many things about there. It really comes back to, you know, if, you just, if you're just intentional, you'll figure this out and you'll get it right. There's an interesting passage. The Bible has a lot to say about whether you're the source of your core values or not. Psalm 100 is a great example. It says, know that the Lord himself is God. I remember the first time I studied theology, I discovered the greatest theological concept to this day that there is a God and I am not him. <laughs> From that foundation, I could go somewhere, right? So this is what that's saying. It says, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us. So simple, yet so profound. And not we ourselves. It kind of contrasts. It's like, he made us. In case you're wondering what that means, you didn't, (laughs) right? It's just very, very explicit. And it goes on. He says, we are his people. We belong to him. We, we come from him. He's the source from which we lead. He's, he's the head of the river. We're the river. You know, if you want to look at it that way, that's fine. But where does the river come from? It does, you can't just find the river in the middle and assume that's where it starts because we know better. Uh, and then he says, we're the sheep of his, of, of his pasture. In other words, that, that ev- not just we belong to him, but we belong to him in the context of where we abide, where we live, where we dwell, our life experiences, all those things. So there's a familiar scripture, we've been talking a lot in Corinthians, uh, and there's a familiar scripture that when I read it, you'll probably recognize it, but you may not recognize the context around the scripture. So let me just kind of set the context. Uh, Paul's writing to these Gentile believers, these worldly people who are learning the ways of God, and he's challenging them in some patterns of sin that they have. 
um, many of them have become believers, but their minds haven't been transformed yet. So they, they, they grew up, were born into a culture, some of them in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever you want to call some of them young, obviously, but they have been living in a culture, in a pattern of life that, that it was just normal to them, right? It, all these things, they, they had these core values, and most of them couldn't identify where they were coming from. But Paul, he's, he's addressing some of these things, and he's saying to them, it, now that you've become a believer, or that you say you've become a believer, so whether you say it and it's true or not, that's, you know, that's something you're going to have to really decide whether that's true. Have you actually become a believer, or are you just talking out of both sides of your mouth, as my grandmother used to say? <laughs> and so, so Paul's going after this. He says, if you, if you call yourself a believer, there are implications to that. So he's challenging them in these worldly patterns, and he's telling them to repent, which the original language is a word called metanoia, and it just means to take on a new mind. We have this picture, if you, especially if you grew up in church, repenting is coming down the, to the front, you know, and, at altar and crying a big puddle of tears, you know, and that's, everybody go, look, there's a, an emotional outburst, so obviously they repented. But then the Bible goes and teaches this, this other place that says there's a worldly repentance, um, and then there's a godly repentance. The worldly repentance is a worldly sorrow, is, I'm sorry I got caught, now I'm busted, so I need to do what I'm, everybody expects me to do. And then there's a godly repentance that actually begins to transform you into something different. And this is what Paul's going after. He's like, you can't just have, you can't just be busted and say, hey, I'm sorry I got caught. It has to go, this repentance, this taking on a new mind, has to change the way you believe. It has to change the core of who you are. So he's going after this. This is 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18, just a couple of scriptures. Um, it says, flee from sexual immorality. It's an interesting thing because the Corinthians were known for their abuse of sexuality. They were doing it all wrong in so many ways. And he says, um, and he makes a comment about it. He says, I want you to flee sexual immorality. In other words, run from this. This is not something you're just going to conquer. All right? It's like, no, I'll be strong. No, you'll be sinful. That's what's going to happen if you try that. So he says, flee from it. He told Timothy to do the same thing. Flee youthful lust. It, when this stuff happens, man, go for a jog. Whatever you got to do, get, get the fire out of there because you're not going to win, right? You're, that's just how it works, especially with, not without God uh, and not without intention in God. So it says, flee from sexual immorality. And the next thing he says is, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. It's interesting, right? He says, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So he's making a comment. We read this, we read this and go, that's interesting. All, of, all the other sins are outside the body. This one, when you sin sexually, when you miss the mark that God intended for you sexually, then you somehow, when you do that, it's more than physical, right? It's, right, it's just, you know, it's not like, oh, you just, it's something you did and it's not a big deal. It does something to the inside of you. And this is what Paul's going out. He says, this is really important. And you don't think it's important because everybody's doing it. <laughs> right? But I'm telling you, just because everybody's doing it, you know, your mom used to say that, if, if your friend jumps off a cliff, are you going to do it too? And our answer was, yeah, of course we are, because we're friends, you know. We didn't say that, but it's what we thought. So anyway, it, it, the sexual sin is more than a physical sin. It's something, it does something on the inside of you that begins to, to do some really bad things. Because sexuality was meant for the intimacy in the commitment of marriage. God says, hey, I have a design, and I have an idea about how something ought to work, and you should really maybe try to do it my way, <laughs> right? It's like it, it, most guys, I'm sure if you're a guy here this morning, you're like, um, you know, the owner's manual is a last-ditch effort to, you know, maybe keep you from going to the emergency room because you're not going to read it, right? That's why they put that one piece of paper in there that says, hey, read this before you, you know, crank your chainsaw. <laughs> it's designed to keep you out of the emergency room. 
But there's a design element. You know, all of this about how God designed us is there's a mindset. Proverbs talks about it this way. It says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it's death. So, so what, he's, what Paul's getting after, he's saying, look, you guys have all these values that came from family, from culture, from events, from whatever. This, you know, writings of really smart people, whatever. This is where, where you've developed this. But Paul's saying, hey, especially about this one thing, I want to talk to you because you're getting this all wrong. And the implications of this going wrong are way worse than you actually think they are. So he goes after that in a big way. Um, it's more than physical. It, it begins to mess with our identity if we're not careful. Obviously, you know, sex outside marriage potentially creates a baby that does, doesn't have the committed mom and dad that, you know, again, God designed it to have. So we have to be careful about that. Um, the danger, though, is, is we go down this road if we're not careful careful because sexuality is so powerful, it'll begin to take on an identity of its own and it'll begin to try to identify us. So you'll begin to identify yourself by sexuality. I had a friend, he's, he's a pastor now, so it, this ends well. <laughs> but when we knew him, he had just given his life to Jesus. We got called in the ministry and started Bible school at the same time. Um, he was what we call a player. So he was not great looking. He wasn't ugly, but he wasn't a great looking guy, but he had an incredible sense of humor and an incredible wit. And he said to me, he was sharing his testimony with us one time, and he says, um, man, I, he goes, God rescued me, because I, he goes, I've literally slept with at least 400 women. And, I, and I'm like, liar, because <laughs> that's what every guy says to another guy who's, you know, talking about his conquest, <laughs> and most of the time it's true. But the more I learned about this guy, the more that had, it was pretty obvious. Was like, that's probably true. This guy's, he's, he's an interesting kind of guy. Um, but what was happening was he, had, he, had, he was defining his life by the conquest, right, of women. He was defining his life by pleasure. He was, defining, he was allowing an identity to occur through this sexual sin. And in his head, it was just a physical thing. But, but the more he learned about this, the more he recognized this had begun to deal with his identity in ways that he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, wasn't aware of. And so I'm, I'm going to get to how this translates into the power and the wisdom of God in just a second. But it's really important because he, he goes after this thing about there's a way that seems right to you, but the end of it's death. And he goes after that in a big way. He gets to verse 20, and he says, um, he says, you were bought at a price. Sorry, let me finish verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? So he's saying if you're a believer, your body is not your own, first of all. It's the temple of God, and you're defiling the temple. You shouldn't. Um, but you are. And then he goes on, he says, this is the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, right? So he said, You're, something needs to change because something's changed on the in, inside, and that, now that inside begins to reflect the outside, right? But that inside is you've taken on an identity that was, was designed for you. This is the way God intended for him to dwell inside of you, for you to be in relationship and connection with God. Because we see in the book of Genesis that you know, God would walk with them in the cool of the day. They were, they were connected that way, so relationally. And then because of sin, that, that, you know, he, they're thrown out of the garden. And the, the, the intimacy that they had with God, they no longer had. It wasn't that God was nowhere to be found because he showed up, you see, he shows up numerous times through the prophets and through, you know, moments, but he wasn't every single day walking with them in that kind of intimacy that he had designed them to walk in. And it began to have effects. And you see that, you, you see after that first sin, it begins to go downhill. What's really fascinating, you can track this through Genesis and, and the first men were living to be almost a thousand years old, right? And we're going to get to this in just a second because some people are like, you know, that's, that's not possible, 
But just go ask the people who lived in the 1600s, the 1700s, even up to the 1800s, uh, about people who lived into their 80s, and they were like, nobody lives to their 80s. That's ridiculous. Kings, maybe, but nobody does that. So, so you see this transition before long. Um, the best you could hope for was 120 years. That's what the Bible says. And so it had dropped almost 1,000 years just by the nature of something happened when they sinned that began to f- affect the physical on the outside. But here's why that's so important, because it was affecting the inside first, right? And so now Paul's saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is going to come live inside of you. And when he does, it's, begin to re- it's going to reverse some things that occurred in, in the early days, right? So I'm not saying if you get saved this morning, you're going to live to be 900 years old. I mean, you might. I don't know. <laughs> but probably not, right? So, so here's this picture of, okay, they're saying, he's saying the Holy Spirit lives in you. You belong to him. You're the temple. And then he goes into this verse. He says, you're not your own. Isn't that an int- I mean, it, it, it echoes Psalm 100. You're, I, don't know, I don't know how you're thinking about this, but if you said, you know, I'm going to invite Jesus into my life as a guide or, you know, whatever. I'm gonna, he's a good prophet. You know, I can trust him. You know, he's, like a, he's a great guru. I've heard all this stuff, right? He's a gr- wonderful teacher. No, 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 no. That's not how Jesus says it. Jesus said, um, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. We've had this discussion. We have this conversation many times with many people about the fact that, Christianity is really exclusive. It turns out all world religions are. If you, if you really go after it, every world religion is exclusive to some degree. But Jesus is exclusive. What's really interesting about this is the easy, easy thing to ask the question, if there were any other way to heaven, then why would God ask his own son to die such a horrible sacrificial death on your behalf if there was another way for you to get to heaven? What kind of father would do that to his son? And what kind of son would agree to do that if there were any other way? And you remember Jesus said in the, in the garden, he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's saying, my physical body, everything within me, I don't want to suffer and die on a cross. It's not, it's not like I'm looking forward to that. But the Bible says in another place, it ends there, and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a really interesting um, model for us. But later on, he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, there's something on the other side of it that was only available if he went through the cross. That's why there was such a joy. And if there was any other way, that wouldn't have been joy. That would have been, why am I doing this? Right? We would all agree that. So um, verse 20, he says now, you were bought at a price. So he's saying, hey, this, this life you think is yours, first of all, it's not. And he's saying, here's why. Because you're not your own. And here's why you're not your own. Because you gave yourself away through sin. And someone came and purchased you at the redemption price. Right? And that's, again, we know the story. It's what Jesus did. And, and the analogies throughout the old covenant lead to the new covenant, this whole idea of, of purchasing back, redemption. What was lost has now been purchased back again, right? And so, again, I won't get into all the, how those stories relate to it. But he says, you're bought with a price. And he says, now because of that, honor God with your physical body, right? So he said, hey, there's more going on here than just a physical, you know, I missed the mark. Ah, it's not that big a deal. Be careful, don't get pregnant. You know, it's almost like some youth ministries, the best hope we can have is, you know, our, our little girls don't get pregnant and our little boys don't get them pregnant. You know, that's our hope. It's like, if that's the minimum for you, man, are you missing the mark when it comes to the kingdom of God, right? So you're bought with a price and there's an expectation now that because you're bought with that price, you live accordingly. So here's we're going to get into why this is so important. And again, you're, you'll see the turnaround in just a second. So people are obviously intentionally trying to live out what they believe. They're trying to live out their core values. 
in a world that often has very, um, trying to think of the best word to, to use, they're, they're directly opposed to God's values. But if you ask them about it, it seems like a good value. It seems right, but the end of it's death. So here's, here's what that means. Um, high values, just a, a different con, uh, way of looking at it, but core values and high values. High values are things that you say are valuable, right? So everybody says, you know, it's, you should treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, that's a high value in everybody's life. But do you actually do that? And the answer is most of the time you don't, right? So you have a, you have a high value that this is what's true to you, but your core value is what you actually live out in your life right? And everybody does this. If you ask them, what's your values? Oh yeah, my value is this. Let me see your checkbook. Because <laughs> it doesn't take long to look at someone's checkbook to go, what is actually valuable to them? Is travel value to you? Because if you, if you love travel, I promise your checkbook will reflect travel, right? Your job, whatever you do, it, it's going to reflect what your actual core value is eventually, if, if you really believe that. So let me give you an, a simple example. If you say, God always takes care of me, but then you worry about his provision when your rent is due, right? God always takes care of me. And then your rent comes due and you're a little short, right? What happens now? And here's what happens. Your anxiety reveals that your high value is that God will take care of you. But because your anxiety and your worry is so strong, your core value is he won't, or at least he won't this time. See how it works? And why that's so powerful is High values are truths that you regard very, very highly, but core values are what you actually believe and what you actually live out. So it's important to understand this because most of us don't know we do this. We, we kind of sort of know it because we see some disconnect. We see a, you know, a little bit of incongruence in our life from time to time. But basically what we do is we, we try to think better of ourselves. So we stick our head in the sand and go, you know, well, I meant well. No, you didn't. <laughs> you were a first-class jerk. You did not mean well. You, you wanted to mean well, but you were so angry and offended that you said some things that you wish you regretted, but let's be honest, you don't regret them, right? Because it's like they had that coming, right? And so, so again, you have these, these desires for these high values, and you know, I don't want to do right, and it's the same thing with the law. That's why God comes, and he brings the, the old covenant. He brought the law before them, and, and they literally stood on two sides of a mountain. Moses had them stand on two sides of the mountain. One side, one half of the people recounted all the blessings of God that would come from obeying the law. And then the other side recounted all of the curses that would come from disobeying the law, right? And he did that on purpose. And it was like this, this massive, you know, obvious conflict of do well, get well, do bad, get bad, Right? And then what was so amazing is when, when Moses reads these laws to the people, they were in such a delusion. Their high value was, oh, yeah, we're going to do the right thing. But their core values turned out to be very, very different when you read this, the Scripture. So they stand on that day. Moses reads the law to them, and they said, we will do everything you've said. So thankfully, God knew better, right? So he said, well, if you don't. <laughs> right? I'm going to put this sacrificial place, the sacrificial system in place so that you don't, you're, you're not judged 
to the point where you can't find some redemption. So once a year, I mean, we know the story. Once a year, there was opportunity for redemption. And then, you know, imagine you go in and you do that once a year and you're like, you realize, man, I didn't do it well. I, I, I screwed up. I did all these terrible things. Ah, man, but thankfully I can come and I can bring a sacrifice and God can look. He takes the sacrifice on behalf of me and judgment isn't taken away. It's just rolled back one more year. It's, it's putting, for lack of a better term, you know, it's, it's, on a, uh, it's on a payment scale. It's on a balloon payment at the end. But thankfully, I don't, I don't have to pay it this month, right? And so, so they would do that. And then, you know, can you just imagine you're walking back from Jerusalem, headed back to your house, and you trip over something, and, you know, you let out a curse word. And you're like, man, <laughs> now i got to wait a whole year before that potentially goes away. And so even the, the promise of the sacrificial system is there's, gonna, there's a lamb, the Bible says, slain before the foundation of time, it's going to take your sin away. Not roll back the judgment, but actually take your sin away. But it's dependent upon something. It's not automatic. And part of the reason why God put the law in place was to show you your need for a Savior. It's what it says in the New Testament. Why? Because we are all under the delusion that I'm okay and you're okay. I had a t-shirt, my first witnessing t-shirt, said if I'm okay and you're okay, then explain this. And it was a picture of Jesus bloody on the cross right? <laughs> so if you're okay and I'm okay, then why, were there, why was there a cross? And the answer is we're, we're not okay, actually, right? So, so this leads me to a discussion around something called fiction versus reality, or a fiction room versus a reality room. So how many of you guys ever watched something on TV that should have troubled you, and it didn't trouble you, you know, some, <laughs> some tragic thing or whatever, you know, um, and it should have troubled you, but it didn't trouble you, and now you're troubled that you weren't troubled. Anybody? <laughs> right? So, so that's all of us. So part of the reason why that happens is we are desensitized. You know, I've, I've been playing video games since I was a young teenager. And, and you know, I'm, I am someone, I'm, I know it's, it's affected me, right? But, you know, I, 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 I don't kill most people I run across who make me mad. So I'm just saying that it didn't do what all those preachers said it was going to do to me when I was a teenager, right? So I'm not saying that they were 100% wrong. <laughs> I'm sure it affected me. But some of that surely is desensitization. But something else is occurring here that's very interesting. What happens is when you see something and it's an entertainment, it's, you read it in a book, you see it in a show, whatever, and, and it's troublesome, right? The act is, is troublesome, but somehow you're not triggered by that and you're not troubled. And the question is why? And we all kind of sort of know the answer. The answer is our brain instinctively looks at that and goes, that's not real, right? And, and it... And when we say that it's not real, then our brain does this amazing thing that says, hey, I can put that in the fiction room, right? And I don't need to set all these things that are in order and set these things in place and begin to, you know, cause levels of anxiety to rise up and, and maybe you start adrenaline rushing and, you know, all these, you know, go get a gun, whatever. That doesn't happen because your brain's going, that's not real. It's okay. You can relax. That's not real, right? So, so what happens though when things that are real occur and your brain does the opposite thing, right? And where you should have some kind of reaction, where you should say something inside you says, this is all wrong, I've missed it, I, I don't know, what, you know what's going on, I'm super troubled by that, but that's a real thing that's happened that your brain puts into the fiction room, right? And this is what was happening with these guys in Corinth they, they had these patterns, they had all these values that they had, had grown up with, they had patterns in their life, and Paul was coming after them saying, hey guys, I get all that, 
but, but you're living a lie. And you need to turn this around and begin to, to, to make a decision about what goes in the reality room and what goes in the, in the fiction room, right? So the truth is we assign everything to this, right? So to go back to the original example of um, God takes care of me, right? So, what, so just use the fiction room analogy and say, I, you know, God takes care of me and then something happens and my, you know, my transmission goes out and some, you know, any, my air conditioner goes out and, and I don't have enough income, you know, I don't have enough money set aside and it's like, oh, now it's coming due and ah, uh, ah, uh, right? And I've asked everybody and if I, say, if I ask them now, they're going to say no and now I'm in trouble and how am I going to do this and whatever. I, I've been in those places you have to, right? How am I going to put tires on the car? All the, I mean, it just comes up. Uh, some of that is, hey, just plan better. That's a thought, right? Budget within your, join the Dave Ramsey group. That's a helpful thing. Where's Travis and Marcy? Are they here this morning? There you go. Right. They can testify that. So some of that's planning, right? But some of that too is what, does, what happens when your anxiety level begins to rise is you've, you've made a decision about what goes in the fiction room and what goes in the reality room, right? So what, what happens is you're like, okay, I, I see the circumstance. Dave got up and shared about the storm that we're in, but there have been promises of God. When he shared that to me, I was like, oh, it's almost like God knows what I'm going to preach. It's so fun, right? <laughs> so that's all of us, obviously. So God's, hey, I'm challenging you. I need you to believe something. And he knew I was going to elaborate. So, you know, we, that's what we, we're doing now. So, so God, all these promises God has made you, are those in the reality room in your brain or are they in the fiction room? You know how you can tell? What do you do about it? Because either it's a high value or it's a core value. If it's high value, you're like, you know, I, I know what I should do. So what I say to all the Christians around me is, they, how are you doing? I am blessed and highly favored. But in your head, I am blessed and highly favored is in the fiction room. <laughs> and bad things are going to happen to me are in the reality room. Anybody relate? I know I can. So Jesus goes after this in a big way. And some of you guys are like, I thought he's preaching about wisdom and power. Right? <laughs> he's all up in my personal business. I'm, gonna, I'm getting there, I promise. But also want to be in your personal business because I enjoy that. All right, so John, John 8, 31. Jesus says something that relates to this in such a powerful way. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in me, or sorry, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples in, indeed. So he said, so they say, they're saying to him, to him I, want to be, I believe you, right? Um, is that a high value or a core value? We're about to find out, Right? Um, you see this in Hebrews as well. The Bible says that there's a scripture that said they tasted, uh, they tasted in these heavenly things, and then later on they didn't, you know, they didn't follow through. And so go read Hebrews. It's very interesting. Um, we get that out of context all the time. But how many of you guys ever been to Sam's Club or what's the other one, Costco or something like that? You know, anybody go there and eat lunch when they're giving out free samples? It's like, <laughs> I, for some reason, I always show up at lunch and I'm like, I'm going to buy a hot dog that's only a dollar, and I'm like, I'm done. I don't. I'm not hungry. I don't need a hot dog because I go around, you know, and then I put a hat on and go around twice. I don't know if you do that. But, but what the whole design is, they're going to go, hey, taste this and see, right? Taste and see if the Lord is good. This is what scripture says. And so you go up to the sample and you're like, mm, that is so good. That's great. And you know, you always do the same thing. You, want, you don't want to like just take their food. So you pretend like you're interested and you go like, oh, you know how much, uh, I mean, what is, where, what aisle is that on? Like, you don't care, but, <laughs> but you ask, right? What aisle? Oh, it's right back here. You know, and how much is that? And you're like, $50. You're like, oh, you know, cause you got to buy a thousand of them at Sam's Club, right? So here's the point. You taste and see, and you're like, that's really good. 
and they're trying to sell it to you. They're like, ah, oh, you should get some. And you're like, you know, I really should. I, to- I totally agree. My high value is <laughs> I should get these. My core value is I'm, I'm going to go to the next sample guy and get another sample. Why? Because to go to that next level now takes a commitment. Right? It's like, how good was it? Was it good enough that you're going to go buy the whole thing? <laughs> right? So we do this. So that's that core, the difference between core value and a high value and the difference between putting it, like Jesus said, hey, if you believe me, if you abide in my word, in other words, you listen, you dwell, you position yourself to hear and learn from me, because that's what he said. My, if, you, if you abide in my word, you are my disciple indeed. And he's saying, disciple just means learner. So he said, if you abide in what I'm saying, if you believe me in what I'm saying, you abide in that long enough, if you read your scripture long enough, you hang around Christians long enough, if you have encounters with God long enough, there is a taste and see moment that begins to happen over and over in your life till at some point you have to make a decision, you have to make a commitment about what you're gonna do. Are you just gonna taste and taste and taste and taste and see? Or at some point, are you really going to buy into this and really make the commitment, it's going to cost you 50 bucks and you're going to have to you know, have somebody help you load it in the car. <laughs> right? So Jesus goes on, verse 30, 32, he says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So listen to that again. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And he says, here's the next part of that. If you do that, so it's conditional. If you say you believe me, you abide in my word, you become a learner. At some point you commit. This is what he says. This is what is, what is potentially available to you. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I, I hate Facebook for lots of reasons, but <laughs> it's a good thing for some people. It's fine. But it drives me crazy because I see so many people taking scripture out of context all the time. And, it's, and it matters. And this is a big one. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. That's not what it says. The reason why it doesn't say that is because it's connected to something that makes this possible. He said to those who believed him, first of all, you believe in Jesus. You're tasting and see. Then you get next to the next place. You say, he says, if you abide in my word. In other words, you don't just, oh, I had a great encounter. He made me feel good. I like the idea of Jesus. But then he says, hey, I, I, I'm challenging with something. And you see this in scripture because every, every disciple that we know of, we know their name. It's because he went to him and he said, hey, come and follow me. Lay down your nets right now. Don't go and do anything. Just right now, lay down your nets and come follow me, right? He says this to the rich young ruler. The Bible says the the guy had tons of wealth. And he says, hey, I've done everything right. What do I need to do? And Jesus said, I see your problem. You love your stuff more than you love God. So sell everything you got, then come follow me. There's this beautiful moment where it's possible. And he would have been another disciple that we would know. We would have his name, but we don't. And the reason why is because the Bible said, um, he loved his stuff more than God, his paraphrase, and he walked away sorrowful. And this is what's powerful to me. Jesus didn't chase him down. He let him walk away. Why? Because free will is really free. He's really given you the ability to make a choice about what you're going to do with what he says. But this is where it's so powerful. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself into saying that's a core value. Whatever God's telling you is a core value if you're not doing it. Because you're lying to yourself, right? <laughs> and, and it's, I would, I know that's heavy. <laughs> but I would much rather you feel the heaviness of it and let it challenge you about what you actually believe and what you say you believe. 
Because what you say you believe means nothing. And it's especially not going to matter on, on that day. It's really not going to matter then. But, Lord, didn't we cast out devils in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we do all these things? Somebody said that's, uh, one commentary said that's because they were in a company of people, not necessarily that they did it. I don't know. Maybe they did it because you see some people do some things in the name of God and he, God helps even though that person's not where they need to be. I've seen that. He's done that with me. <laughs> Let's be honest. But the words that come after that are frightening. He said, depart from me. I never knew you. You said you knew me, but I never knew you. You never let me know you. You were the, you were the God of your own kingdom. You were the Lord of your own life. You never let me become that. So a little bit heavy, I get it. But here's why this is so powerful. Because when you get that, and, you, and you're honest about that, something now has the potential, not just the potential, it's likely to happen. This is why Jesus said that. He said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, why is that so powerful? That word, in the original language, it means the quality of being in accord with what is true. So what is that? It literally means reality, right? So Jesus said, you, here's an easier way to read it. You shall know God's reality, and God's reality will make you free, <laughs> right? Because um, truth is not now, nor has ever been subjective. Regardless of what our culture says, one of the biggest issues we deal with right now in, in the young generation, and some of you guys know this, is that... Um, you're being told that truth is subjective and that you know, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with 100% of your heart, which is the dumbest thing in the world. But people are, why? Because just like the Corinthian church, since they were a child, this is what's been pushed into their life. The pattern of their family, the world events, entertainment, everything in culture is selling you something. And God is coming back and going, I want, I want to challenge you on that and bring you back to reality because your good intentions do not define reality. I get to do that. Nobody get, you know why? Because I made it. I made reality. So, you shall know God's reality, and God's reality will make you free. There's a very little known poem I want to read to you. I'll put it up here so you can follow with me. It says, Last eve I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. <laughs> and so I thought the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics, skeptic blows have beat upon, yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammer's gone. The short version of that is God's word is an anvil, on which many a hammer has been broken. I know that because I've broken a ton of hammers on the word of God, <laughs> right? Um, so here's my question. You're wondering how it's going to get to the transition. Here it is. Um, walking in the power of God. Tongues, prophecy, signs and wonders, healing, gifts of healings, all these supernatural things. Supernatural is not against nature, it's above it. Is walking in the power of God a high value for you or a core value? <laughs> and so here's what I know. If you're going to be practically supernatural, you have to actually do it. 
right? You actually have to say, I'm going to engage now, and I'm going to take some chances. I'm going to step out in faith. Because the question is, do you really believe that God still does this now? If you grew up in the wisdom camp, all, all of the culture was saying, even a Christian culture, was saying God doesn't do this anymore because when that which is perfect has come, that which is perf- uh, imperfect will be done away with. And they said, they use that scripture to say that's the gifts of the Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only all of church history since the, the book of Acts proves them otherwise. Go read the church fathers. There's signs and wonders and miracles throughout the church fathers' writings, all the way through the history of humanity, even in the dark ages. Um, the, the supernatural is occurring all over the place all the time. In, in, all the way up to, the, to the, uh, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the latter rain they called it, happened in 1904, 1906, the early part of the 1900s, where Pentecostal churches begin to grow up. The power of God began to work in people's lives. Through the 40s, the healing evangelists were seeing signs and wonders that will blow your ever-loving mind. And it's not stopped. It's only gained in momentum. And the only way you can say that that's not true is to absolutely stick your head in the sand and pretend it isn't true. Because it's just obvious for anybody who's willing to do a modicum of research online or read a book or talk to someone who's involved in that area. So we come through this place of, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to live my authentic self, and my authentic self is wisdom. I love the wisdom of God. Man, I'm so glad for you. (laughs) I do too. But there's wisdom in power. And that's why I think so often if we're not challenged, we just, we assent to, I love the power of God. I want to hang out in, in a company of people like, the guy who said, you know, didn't we, didn't we heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons? Didn't we do that in your name? Jesus is like, I don't, know who you, I don't know who you are. Now, I'm not saying that you're in the wisdom camp. Jesus doesn't know you. I'm just saying there's a place at some point where you have to decide what you're going to do about, have I been leaning into an area that's wonderful and amazing and it's awesome, but it's nowhere near the intention that God has for you, the, the inheritance that he has available for you. And I say that to you, but I also say it to myself, that I'm always saying, Lord, there's, there's so much more available to us. And I think if you walk into DCF on a given Sunday and you see what we experience, one, it's great. We see some great and amazing things, the word of the Lord, signs and wonders. People are, there's healings going on. But it is nowhere near, our eldership or Karen and I personally is nowhere near where we want to be. It's the beginning stages of what God is trying to bring back into the world for the world's sake. See? And so there's this beautiful thing that God's trying to do. If we're not careful, we can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And we know that. We've seen people who are in the power camp that are so bent on the signs and wonders and the encounters that you, they're obviously lacking wisdom. And so the danger of that, if you came from the wisdom camp, you want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So the corollary to that old adage is, still, is also true that you can be so earthly-minded that you're no heavenly good. And so I just want to challenge us. Let me just give you four keys to just becoming practically supernatural, right? So now that you dealt with the fact that you might be living a lie, <laughs> let's move on to how do you get out of that? How do you take some of these steps? The first one is you have to create a core value for hearing the voice of God. It can't be a high value. It has to be a core value. So what does that look like? It looks like Learn about it. 
Read Scripture. What does the Scripture say? Talk to people who, who operate in these gifts and, and the way the Lord works in their life. Say, hey, what does that look like? And then begin to discover what that looks like in you. We've got several people in our church that a lot of this stuff is new to them, and to, to their great credit, and I love it, they're beginning to step out in faith and going, hey, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned because I've seen some danger, but at the same time, I know this is from the Lord, and I see the tension is being held right, the balance is there, so I can lean into the things of God in such a way that we can see the power of God. We can be the Corinthian church without all the Corinthian problems, right? That's, we could actually do that. So create a core value, not just a high value, but a core value for hearing God. Secondly, you have to be willing to take a risk. So I'm going to use an example that happened to me. Um, I was coming back from Birmingham, stopped in Montgomery, Karen and I, to have lunch with a, a pastor couple that we'd met and a couple of their uh, leaders from the church. We were just kind of, you know, kicking the tires, see whether it was a relationship that we we're going to, um, you know, it was a long-term relationship. So we're just connecting with them. Sit down this really nice lunch, just focused on that, and a girl comes up to take our order uh, you know, the assumption was she was a waitress, but she was dressed nicer than most waitresses, and I thought, that's interesting. And then um, as she's standing there taking the, the order, I heard the Lord say in my head, she has compassion for young, unwed mothers. And I was like, okay. <laughs> that's awesome, Lord. Glad you told me. But I knew better, right? He wasn't telling me just so he's like, hey, I just thought I'd share that with you. Isn't that cool? I was like, yeah, that's awesome, Lord. <laughs> Y'all know what comes next, right? What am I going to do about it? You think he just told me that because um, she didn't know it? I bet she knew it. So I, I'm like, okay, that's a big one. So I, I, you know, I learned a long time ago to quit messing around and just take the chance, take the risk. Because I was pretty clear. It was pretty clear it was the word of the Lord. And and so I, in the early days, though, I would have said, oh, that is that God? Ooh. You know, I did. I would have done the dance. Anybody done the dance? God, is that you? Or is that me? Is only I understand. Yeah, that's totally the devil wanting to redeem and help people. Yes, yeah, absolutely demonic. You shouldn't do it, right? <laughs> so I just simply said, okay. Um, she comes over and I said, hey, can I, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, uh, I was praying for you. Because I was. I was praying for her after I heard the Lord about her. Just, you know, I was trying to look spiritual because I'm a pastor. And so I'm like, hey, I, as I was praying for you, <laughs> I was praying for you. And I felt like the Lord said, you have compassion on young women who are unwed mothers. And she just starts to tear up. And she said, yeah, that's, I'm like, she didn't even question that I, you know, like I totally heard God and I didn't know her. She didn't, that didn't even come up. She just, she was so incredibly like, that's so true. And, you know, and she goes, and what's interesting, she goes, is I'm the manager here at this restaurant and I've hired three girls who are unwed, you know, they're, they got little babies, but they're not married and my heart goes out for them. But there's this management worker barrier that I'm not supposed to go past. And so I said, so, and I'm going to get to this in just a second. What do you think God's trying to do here? <laughs> if God is telling me to affirm that in you, I wonder if he's saying something to you about what all that means. Like maybe you should take a chance and take a risk. Maybe the world's version of wisdom that you shouldn't get embroiled in their personal problems is the world's version of wisdom but not God's. Well, what if I do that and I risk my job and I get fired? Okay. You were looking for a job when you found that one, right? <laughs> so I'm just saying that maybe God, in his wisdom, said this is a higher value, is a core value, is, is a higher value than you keeping your job. Now, I didn't say any of that. That was up to her to decide what to do about it. But here's my point. 
if I'd have never taken a risk, if I'd have never said, hey, I think this is what God is saying, we would have never, she would have never been confirmed, or at least not through me, confirmed that everything that was happening in her like that, that God had done that in her life, that he was involved in every portion of her life, and especially this redemptive call and this, this, this desire to help people who were in need and who needed redemption themselves, right? And so you have to learn God's language. That's, that's another one. You have to learn God, how God talks to you. For some of you guys, he talks, he talks to all of us in the furnishings of our mind. Our talk, I was talking to Mark. Mark said God often talks to him in flight language, and also horse language, and also as a policeman, because he was all those things, right? <laughs> so God will use the language, the, the furnishings of your mind to speak. But let me just share with this. You want to move that eventually to learning more of God's word so that when God uses the furnishings of the, your mind, the furnishings of your mind are the furnishings of his mind. There's nothing wrong. God will still use you in all those other areas, in your gifts, and in in the things that he made you, in your passions, all that he's going to use but he's going to tie it to his purposes and his desires. Um, and lastly, you have to learn to be um, not weird for weird's sake. Because so often when we begin to move in the things of the Spirit, if we're not careful, especially when God begins to confirm it, begins to do it, what we do is we start getting a little attention. And, and I like attention. You know, it's like, anybody ever see somebody with a face tattoo? And then you look at it, and they're you know, at Starbucks, and they got a face tattoo, and you look at it, and you're like, you don't know, you know, you're trying to look down, and, and, and then, then they see you looking at it, and they get all offended because you're looking at their face tattoo, and they're like, uh, you know, how, how dare you look at my face tattoo? And you're like, oh, dude, you got a face tattoo. It's not like you didn't want us to look at I mean, if you wanted a tattoo that nobody looked at, don't put it on your face, right? You know, that would be my argument. So often when God moves in power, what will happen is there will be a, a desire for attention because people go, man, when you pray, and why that's so important to understand is that God wants to change the pattern of your thinking, change your mind. And part of selfishness is to avoid the gifts of the Spirit because it's risky and it can potentially get you in trouble or whatever. It's one reason why we don't. But then when you begin to step into it, sometimes that selfishness takes a different picture and it begins to say, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. And part of maturity as we grow in the response to the Holy Spirit is, hey, let's not do that. Let's, let's do this so that all the glory goes to God and the results go to God. And so let's take the attention off ourselves and put it on God where it belongs. So don't be weird for weird's sake. It's kind of what I'm getting at. So let me end it with this. There's just three, I've, I've shared this many, many times, just super practical. Three arenas for how God begins to move in this way. Um, revelation, interpretation, and application. So let me use the example I, I, I used earlier with the woman uh, at the restaurant in Montgomery. So um, I'm sitting there, minding my own business. <laughs> I wasn't, really. I'm about the Lord's business with this pastor, so I'm already there. And so God uses this opportunity. This young woman comes up. So first of all, I've made that a high value, or sorry, a core value in my life to hear his voice. So when he interrupts me, I'm not offended. I recognize that I, that's my value anyway. So I'm like, awesome, this is cool. And so I get a revelation. The Lord reveals to me um, this woman has compassion for unwed mothers, right? Don't know it. I don't know anything else. That's the only thing I know. So I have a revelation. What's the interpretation? What does that mean is a better question to ask. Well, I can surmise some of that, right? Um, I know God's not going to tell me. This is just me to keep quiet. This is something he wants to affirm in her. That's pretty obvious. So the interpretation is, hey, you should share this with her. 
she's going to recognize it. It's going to affirm something in her, and she's going to see me moving in her life, and she's going to take strides towards me in living this out, but more importantly, walking with me. And so I have a revelation and interpretation. The last thing I do is, what's the application? Well, I don't know. So I didn't say to her, you should totally love those unwed mothers and, you know, you were looking for a job when you found this one, so see what happens. Because <laughs> maybe that's not what God's going to do. Maybe the application is God's going to find a way to do it where she doesn't lose her job. Maybe in doing that, it, it actually changes some of the thought patterns behind why that rule was in the, there in place in the first place. And it's literally going to change an organization to be more in line with the things of God even though maybe that organization isn't a Christian organization. I don't know that. Maybe God's going to say, you know what, you need to do it, and let whatever happens, happens, because I'm in it, I'll take care of you, you've got to trust me, and this is a risk you need to take. But I didn't know that application, so listen, I didn't share that. And sometimes I even affirm the fact that I don't have an application and say, I don't know what you ought to do about that. But if I were you, I would seek his face, and say, God, will you tell me what to do? Will you give me an application to this revelation now that you have placed in my life? And so, last scripture, always in this series so far, I've always ended it with this. Uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty four: To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you want to learn about the things of the Spirit? You want to step out of high value versus core value? You want to move the reality, uh, move God's version of reality into the reality room in your brain, then you're going to have to submit to Jesus and you're going to have to make him Lord of your life. And you're actually going to have to let him lead you. Let the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that he, the Holy Spirit will come and, when he come and he's inside of you. He will teach you everything you need to know about Jesus, right? So it's t all tied together. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul's writing to these guys and he says, um, when I came to you, my message, my preaching weren't in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So let me just kind of say it this way. When that occurred to that, to that young woman, whatever faith arose in, in her wasn't from the wisdom of men. Why? Because it was a demonstration of God's power working in her life. Why did God do it that way? Paul wrote, and he said, here's why God uses power. So that you know that what is happening in you is God and not man. So sometimes that means it's God and not you because you're a man or a woman, whatever. You see what I'm saying? You're human. So that means you just submit it to the Lord. So listen to that again. He said, when I came, I didn't come with preaching uh, persuasive words of wisdom. In other words, I wasn't trying to convince you with a good argument. There's a lot of that in world religion. There's a lot of that in our culture. There's a reason why the Corinthians had to be corrected because, I mean, I, I remember the first time I read it and it said that, they, that one guy was sleeping with his, his father's wife and he, he's like, you guys are doing things that even the world doesn't do. And I'm like, what kind of church is this? You know, right? Because <laughs> I'm like astounded. I'm like, oh my God. But you have to take into account Paul writes to correct them. Why? Because he, he was there with them. And he brought a church out of that and he saw these guys are so deep into the culture that what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. And that's what they believe. And the demonstration of the power of God 
removes the delusion, removes the lie, removes the, the excuses that we have. It takes away all of that. And, it, and, and, it sh- and God shows up, and you know he showed up. There is no doubt. You cannot wonder whether God is in the place or not. You can wonder later. You can question. But in that moment, whether you follow him or not, whether you submit to God or not, that's not what I'm talking about. That's a decision you have to make about what he did. And I know that's true because the Bible says that the last times when it's all said and done, that there are going to be some people who have not bowed their knee to God when they've seen everything. They're at the end, they're literally standing before God that they didn't believe in. And the Bible says in that day, every tongue is going to confess and every knee will bow, or every knee will bow, every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord. That all that stuff that he's been trying to tell you, trying to bring you into hope and, and inheritance and all those things that you ignored because you were building your own kingdom and you thought you could do a better job, right? Jesus saying, man, if you'd have just let me, I'd have brought you into all your inheritance. But here's my point. In that moment, they still did not want to believe in God. They know it's true. And, and God has to force them to bow their knee and to confess with their mouth that he's Lord. And that's astounding to me that people could do that. Because my thought was, if people could just see God move, then surely they would submit to him. That's not true. But if they don't ever see God move, it's easy to relegate what you're talking about in God to a a well-founded argument and not the reality of God. But when someone gets healed, Someone has a word of knowledge. Someone sh- you share something with them. A supernatural event happens. There is no alternative but to believe that there is a supernatural God. What I do with him, that's up to me. But I can no longer deny that he's real. All right? So, Paul goes after this in 1 Corinthians 12 and then 14, sandwiches it in love. He says, are you earnestly desiring the best gifts? That's what he asked the Corinthian church. Pretty obvious they wanted them, but are you doing it the way you ought to? Because that's what 1 Corinthians 13 was about. And then he said in 14, are you pursuing love? So this is, you've got to do this too. And lastly, are you desiring spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy? Are you desiring them? Is it a high value or is it actually a core value? Because when it's all said and done, you're asking the Lord, the, the Lord's always asking questions. There's two questions. We talk about this as a disciple. What's the Lord saying to me? For you to believe that God's talking to you, that's already supernatural, by the way. You can't even be a Christian without believing that Jesus rose from the dead. So you can't get in without believing the supernatural, right? And somehow you like push that aside and go, well, that was for the end. That's not for that. It's not relevant to me. And part of what I'm preaching to you this morning is it is relevant to you. You can't make excuses, you can't hide, you can't pretend, you can't go, that's for somebody else, I'm not gifted that way, forget all those things. God is saying, part of your inheritance and the world around you, the inheritance that the world has in Christ is often going to come, not because you witness to them, that's wonderful, do that, but in your witnessing to them, you demonstrated the power of God in their life. Why? Because when they believe in him, They'll never go back to that was a well-founded argument. They will go, God showed up. I will not and cannot deny it. Amen? So I want to ask you, lean in. What's the Lord saying to me is a wonderful question, but it's one of two as a disciple should ask. The second one is simple. 
what am I doing about it? Are you reading the Bible about spiritual gifts? Are you saying, Holy Spirit, I want to know you more? Are you being honest and authentic, going, Lord, I'm a little bit afraid if I'm honest. I'm afraid I'm going to get caught up in some of these ideas. So, but are you leaning in? Are you willing to take the risk? Are you saying, Lord, when you've said this to me that I want you to pursue spiritual gifts and I read it to you, so he does, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to lean in? Are you going to say, God, I, I trust you? That's the question. So I want you to stand with me. Lord, thank you for breaking in, Jesus. Thank you for breaking into our lives in ways, Lord, that we just simply can't deny. And so, Lord, we just we lean into that. And I say, Lord, I want to get better at this. I want to grow in this. I want to move it from just being a high value to really, really, really being a core value. Lord, that when you interrupt me with a supernatural word or a supernatural thought, Lord, that I, that I respond to that, that I don't, I don't just say, wow, I wonder if that's God. Lord, I actually begin to pursue it and begin to take a step of faith, believing that it is what you said. I begin to take that thought, Lord, and put it in the reality room and take it out of the fiction room. Lord, let this, the, the importance of these things, Lord, grab hold of me. So it's, it's not just, um, it's, it's fake in my brain so it doesn't, cre- it doesn't elicit a response. Lord, I want, it to, I want it to move me. I want it to keep me awake at night. Lord, I want, me, I want it to make me lean in and begin to get desperate for more of you. Lord, when people are suffering and they need healing, Lord, that some of that is tied to my obedience, that I can lean in and I can say, Lord, would you use me to break through in a supernatural event in their life because you want to demonstrate your great love and demonstrate your power in their midst so that their faith is built on you and who you are and not just a good argument. Lord, I want you to move in me in huge ways. Give me dreams, Lord, like you did so many people in the Bible. Lord, give me thoughts. Ch- cause me to grow. Lord, let me be willing to miss it and, and, and even to look foolish, Lord, if, if necessary, but so I can lean into you and I can grow. But Lord, thank you also that I have friends, I have people around me, fathers and mothers, other disciples, Lord, who have gone farther in this than I have, and they can save me some, from so many wrong thinking, so many wrong ways and wrong, wrong ways of thinking. Lord, as I lean in, would you just begin to open these doors of the supernatural, Lord, that signs and wonders would become commonplace in our world again. Lord, that the book of Acts would rise up out of the history pages, Lord, and become our experience in everyday life. Lord, that as someone tells me their problems and their issues, that I would be careful to listen for your voice, and and maybe you'll say, I want you to be the answer to that. I want you to show them that I'm the answer, and I want to use you. I I want you to take a step of faith and pray for them. I want to say this to you, and I want you to say that to them. Lord, would you use us to do that? Would it move us, Lord, the way it moved you? That's my prayer. For Jesus, for that, we just say thank you. We want to, we want to grow. Thank you, Lord, for challenging us. In your name we pray. This morning, if you like prayer, um, we would love to do that. It's a little bit different than some mornings. Um, the Bible talks about gifts. Many gifts came because of the laying on hands of, of the leaders in the church. Um, if you're interested in that, and you're like, you know what, I'd love for someone to pray for me and see if maybe some of those gifts come into my life. Um, you have some desire for prophecy, desire for spiritual gifts, and you're like, I'd like to see more of that. Uh, our team will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to trust the Lord with you for you to grow and to step out in, in a bigger arena of faith. Um, and if, you, if not, we, uh, we still love you. <laughs> we can pray for you anyway. But if you want that, I would love for you, rather, while other people are going that way, would you just come up here and just let us lay hands on you. Let us pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful weekend. Love you guys.